You know, there's a lot uh, in the Christmas story that we kind of take for granted and yet was not easily known. Um, for instance, you know, the song we, we, we sing, what, what child is this? I mean, it was just a baby, a baby, another baby born. There were, there were many that year, right? And yet we look back now and say, oh, of course, of course there he was. And look at the Old Testament, and, and, we, and we point to prophecies, and yet uh, this was an amazing thing. It, it, was, it was a surprising thing that, that we celebrate on Christmas, this birth of the Christ, the Son of God, we call nativity. That I... I um, for instance, you go to the Gospels, you go to the book of Matthew in chapter 2, and, and uh, there are these three wise men, or magi, or as we sing, these three kings, and they're, they're traveling in. Well, it says there are three of them in the song. We don't know that there were three of them. But they're, as they're coming along, and, and they're, they, they go to Jerusalem. It's the capital city. They're looking for the king. The king has been born. The king of the Jews is going to be the king of the world. The king has been born, so they go to Jerusalem. They're looking for this king. Well, where'd you go? You go to the capital. And they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And so the, um, well, the, the king at the time was disturbed by that, and, and, he, and he checks with the, with the scribes and the priests and those who know God's book, where is the Messiah to be born? And they, they say, well, Bethlehem. They refer to a a prophecy tucked away in the book of Micah that predicts that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And we, often, we can turn to that passage. In fact, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Micah. And if, you, uh, if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you this morning, you'll find us on page 779. But what that small Prophecy tucked into the rest of the flow of the book of Micah it says that the Christ, the son of David, the king who would rule forever, and it says more about him, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. I want us to consider that passage again this morning, just a couple of verses, because it tells us something about Christmas. There are some lessons from Bethlehem that I want us to get this morning. Maybe, maybe something that you hadn't thought about, even if that's a somewhat familiar passage. Maybe you've read it in Matthew. Maybe your family gathered and you read the Christmas story. You saw that. And you said, oh, well, that's interesting. That was predicted. I hope that there's something more for you in those words from Micah concerning Bethlehem. I hope there's something more about the gospel according to Micah in these words from Bethlehem. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, Open your word to us. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for this time of year. We thank you for the reminder that your son came. We thank you, Lord, for the, for the reminder that we anticipate is coming again. Lord, we long for it. We hunger for it. Even in the midst of the celebration, there's something about it that feels not yet finished, not yet full, not yet complete. We long for it to be all that we hope for. Lord, we long for the return of your son to reign as king, to make all that's wrong right, and to finish his work that he's even begun in us. Lord, remind us of some things that we need to know about your son who came for us in that little town of Bethlehem. Speak to us this morning from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
I want you to turn, as I mentioned, to Micah, and we'll be in chapter 5, verse 2 to 5 of Micah chapter 5. Let me read those verses, and then we'll, we'll back through them again, and uh, like I said, there will be some lessons, five of them in fact. Five things I just want us to take away, tuck away somewhere uh, in the midst of this Christmas season. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when, he who is, when she who is in labor has given birth. And the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Lessons from Bethlehem. Lessons from this word concerning Bethlehem. First of all, you Bethlehem and even mentions Bethlehem Ephrathah, or Bethlehem in this greater area, this region, because Bethlehem was a little place. Well, Bethlehem was, in some circles, a well-known place because David came from Bethlehem. But remember, that's one of the surprising things about David. One of Israel's greatest kings would come from a place that hardly anybody had heard of. And even later on, what Bethlehem was really known for, Jerusalem was called the city of David, and that was his capital. Bethlehem was known as the place where, one of the places where sheep for the temple sacrifices were provided. It was a, it was a shepherding town. Not much more than a village, really. It was not a large place. Surprising that David would come from there. All the more surprising that David's greater son, the king of glory, the long-anticipated Messiah would come from a little town called Bethlehem, too least to be even numbered among the various clans or cities of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. What I want us to take away from there, from verse 2, lesson number one is don't despise the little things. Isn't it surprising how God takes the little thing, God takes a little village, and from there, he brings forth his son. It's to that little place, Bethlehem, not the big city, Jerusalem, and there were plenty of other places, but no, it's this little town of Bethlehem. Think of that when you sing that song. Don't despise the little thing. It might be caring for children. It might be uh, some other variety of tasks or caring or serving that goes unnoticed by everybody. It seems a little thing. As I look out in the room this morning, there's, there's folks that I don't see here because I know they're actually across the way in the nursery and in the pre-K doing little things that nobody notices. And yet, that's where God works, often in the little things. Many of us would think of ourselves as little things. Who am I? In fact, the psalmist asked that question. Psalm 8, who am I that you would take notice of me? What is humanity that God would notice us? And yet he did. Don't despise the little things. The little things are where God works. Now, don't, don't then turn that all the way over and make Christmas all about me. Make Christmas all about us. 
The, Christ, the story of Christmas is not about us. It's about God. Look what God has done. And yet, God has chosen to write us into his story. Think about that. It's kind of like the shepherds. Those shepherds there in the little town of Bethlehem. Shepherds are nobody in society. And yet, when the angelic chorus comes from heaven to proclaim this great news in, in, in wondrous fashion, who do they sing it to? The crowds in Jerusalem who were ready for a holiday show? No. In the middle of the night, in an unknown field, outside even of Bethlehem proper. It wasn't even shouted in those quiet streets. No, it was out in the field somewhere to a lowly band of shepherds that God made his announcements. Now, the Christmas story, the nativity, is not about the shepherds. It's about God's son. And you see how God wrote them into his story. When I say don't despise the little things, because that's where God works. In the midst of your life, what seems like little, what seems like insignificant, you may think, I'm nobody, and yet God has noticed you. And Christmas is not about you, but God has chosen to write you into his story that's about his son. His son came for us. Don't despise the little things. One of the things we learn about Bethlehem, though you are least among all the cities, it's from you. It's from you. One will come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth is from of old, from ancient days, from everlasting. Wow. Somebody's going to come. 700 years after Micah writes that, somebody's going to come, but the one who is going to come is the one whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. What, what Micah is saying is what child is this who could be born in a point in time and yet whose goings forth, whose activities, whose origins maybe is one way to understand the word goings forth or the phrase. Another way to understand it, what else it also means is, is the going forth of going forth out into battle. The going forth in victory, it's an action word. The king has gone forth. The king in glory has gone forth. And God has been doing that from ancient days. God has, has promised and God has performed. The same God who, who brought his people up out of Egypt. The same God who brought them into the land. The same God who, who enables David to, to slay the giant. The same God who again and again rescues and delivers his people is the same God who is finishing what he started. His goings forth are from of old, and here he comes. Lesson number two from Bethlehem. God finishes what he starts. Believe that God will finish what he started. Believe that God will finish what he started. God will finish his promise. He promised to David that from him a son would come who would rule over Israel forever. A son would come who would rule the world. So we don't see it yet. We saw the son come, but he doesn't yet rule. He hasn't yet made all that's wrong right. But God will finish what he started. Now let's get personal again. In the New Testament, the book of Philippians, Paul writes this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
God will complete. See, I, I love the way that goes together. Don't despise the little things like me because he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. God finishes what he started. The same one who rescues Israel out of Egypt is the same one who who calms the storm on the sea, the same one who feeds the 5,000, the same one who dies and rises again to give us everlasting life, the same one who will defeat that final enemy, death itself, the same one who will rule and reign forever and we will reign with him, the same one who will make everything that's wrong right. God finishes what he started. You and I need to believe that God will finish what he has begun. Nativity is God's guarantee of victory. We don't see it yet. We don't taste it yet. But we know. We have that confidence. Already a child born is a son given. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. Believe that God will finish what he started. Number three. Trust that trouble will lead into glory. Trouble, already here we talk about his, this, this one is, is coming. His goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, and yet there's trouble coming. Look again at verse 3. Therefore he will give them up until the time that, he, that she who is in labor. I keep saying he who is in labor. <laughs> that just doesn't work, does it? But actually, it does suggest something, that, that uh, the labor here, the, the imagery of childbirth. Okay, you say, wow, there's Mary right in the, right in the verse. It's, it's bigger than Mary. It's the trouble upon a nation. It's the trouble upon a people. It's even bigger than that. It's the trouble upon a world. But especially out of that nation, that nation is going to give birth to a Messiah. And there's a reference here all the way to the end of the book, all the way to the book of Revelation. I'm not going to turn there and unpack that for you. But what is being said here, there will be trouble, but that trouble will lead to glory. There's a couple of words I want to underscore. When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return. Until, some virgins read, she who is in labor has given birth, then then. There is an until and a then. Here in this gap is where we live. With surety of the promise and yet the absence of the full experience of it. We have not yet experienced all that has been promised and all that God is doing in the sending of his son. We have already gotten the first fruits of it. Eternal life that we already begin to live in and step into. If you've believed in Christ as Savior already, you're, you're indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, and you see the fruit of the Spirit within your life. You see God's transformation, God's change in your life, and that gives you confidence that what God has said He will do, that He will finish what He started. And even in the midst of the trouble, there is glory coming. There is glory coming. That Trouble in the present will lead to glory. There's something else in that verse. The rest will return. There are some folks that you long for to celebrate Christmas with you at a different level, aren't there? There's some folks you wish that could celebrate this holiday with all of the hope and hunger and anticipation for his return because they believe they know what child is this. 
and yet they don't yet. You long for them, but there will be, even in the midst of the troubles in life, God will, you know, the troubles in life, they, they either press us toward God or we'll allow them to push us farther away. Why did God allow this? I don't like God. If God's going to do something like this, I cannot believe in a God who's going to allow that to happen. I'm going to define God the way I want to define him. Or those troubles will bring me to the end of myself. I cannot stand on my own. I am not strong enough. I am not as strong as I thought I was. I need a Savior. And his name is Jesus. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Trust that trouble will lead to glory. And just as trouble will lead to glory in all of life's experience, it could be that way for somebody you know. In the midst of their trouble, join them there. Pray for them there. Show them something of Christ there because God uses trouble on the way to glory. In verse 4, in the midst of that theme of trouble towards glory, then if that's true, we can embrace Christ's humility on the way to his majesty. Look at verse 4 again. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. There is majesty coming. Don't, don't lose sight of that in the, in the humble surrounds of Bethlehem. There with a child laid in a feeding trough. Not much of a royal entrance. But don't, don't, don't define God there. That's the humility that the God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, steps down into humanity. He lays aside his glory and takes upon himself humanity that he might join us, that he might stand for us, that he would live among us, that he would die for us. But that humility is so that in dying for us, he could bring many sons to glory. He could bring many of us with him to glory. To glory. We embrace him in his humility on the way to majesty. You know... There's a lot of different ways to look at life's experience and try to make sense of life trouble. Um, in some Eastern religions, like, for example, Buddhism understands life like a sand sculpture. Now, you should take your life in the midst of all of its troubles and yet work at making that life into something beautiful and worthwhile, all the while knowing that it will not last. And some of you are comforted in that, right? I'm so glad it came to pass. I'm so glad it didn't come to stay, right? Some aspects of life that you are, you are looking forward to passing, and yet, and yet, Buddhism would say that our life is like a sand sculpture. Make it into something beautiful. Craft it into something meaningful. And yet, when the tide comes in, it will be washed away and gone. In the larger scheme of things in the future, this life was like a sandcastle that is washed away and is gone. That is not a Christian perspective of this life, even the troubles of it. God uses the stuff of this life. God uses the troubles even of this life as his workshop for glory. We embrace humility on the way to majesty that, that well, Paul in the New Testament puts it this way. The, these temporary sufferings 
which are but for a moment. These light sufferings, he says, which are but for a moment in comparison, are not worthy to be compared with the exceeding eternal weight of glory. He says that he is using, in Romans 8.18, he says that God is using the sufferings of this present life to work in us a far greater weight of glory. God uses the trouble. Like, like a diamond is produced under heat and pressure, God uses the troubles on the way to perfection. God uses the humility on the way to glory. One of the lessons of Bethlehem, then, is embrace him. Join in that humility. I need not exalt myself now. I can go under. I can put myself lower, put somebody else higher. I can, I, I can give what I have for the need of another because the Scripture says that humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt us in due time. Embrace his humility on the way to majesty. And we know that in the future we will reign with him. One more. The fact that humility is the way to glory tells us what verse 5 tell us, tells us that he, this one, this coming one, this one who would be born in Bethlehem, this one who though he's born in Bethlehem, his goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. The child born to us, the son given to us, his name is called the everlasting father, the almighty God. And yet he's born in the humblest of settings. He's born to live, and yet he lives to die. Because he, as verse 5 says, or the first phrase of verse 5 that actually joins with verse 4, there's a break in the Hebrew after that, he shall be our peace. You know, you think about peace, you think about the absence of hostility. And that is not Bethlehem today. In fact, I read an article this morning about Bethlehem and bemoaning the situation in Bethlehem that tourism has really fallen off because there's a barricade between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in the West Bank. It's in the Palestinian-controlled area. And so people travel to Israel and they travel to Jerusalem with all of their... And even if they take a taxi or bus trip into Bethlehem to see some of the famous sites there, they don't spend the night there. They don't buy much there. They get back on their bus and they leave Bethlehem again. And Bethlehem is not benefiting even from that tourism. Bethlehem is a place of conflict and strife and trouble and poverty. The city of Bethlehem has the highest unemployment rate in all the land of Israel. Bethlehem is not a city of peace. And yet, the one born there will be our peace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13 puts it this way. I'm going to turn over there so I, I don't misquote it to you. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse, I'll read just verse 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off, you who once were separated from God, distant from God, like that barrier that separates Jerusalem from Bethlehem. You who once were separated from God have been brought near to God. There is peace with God. You have been reconciled. How is it that I could be reconciled to God? Through 
the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his death for us in our place, paying the price for our sin, our guilt, that separated us from a holy and a just God. It's been covered. It's been paid. Verse 14 goes on, for he himself is our peace. Romans chapter 5 says, therefore being, being justified, being made righteous, By faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Philippians chapter 4 says that that because of Christ and our access to God, we have the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ. A confidence in him that I can trust myself to him that I'm at peace. But even more than that, he is our peace. Peace in the sense of the fullness of life, the shalom. When, when When a Jewish person greets another, shalom. Shalom Alechim, peace to you. That doesn't just mean I hope you don't get in an argument today. That doesn't just mean I hope you get along okay with your mother-in-law at Christmas dinner. That's not what it means. It means much more than that. It means all of the fullness and richness of life as it's supposed to be, as God created and intended it to be, would be upon you and would be your experience that fullness of life? Do you feel like life is not quite what it ought to be? Do you feel like life ought to be more than this? That fullness is found in Christ. He is our peace. Our fullness is found in him. That find your peace in the Prince of Peace. We looked last week, we were also in the book of Micah, and we saw how there's a tendency among humanity to try to look for peace in any other way that we can fashion it. In fact, just one, one example. There was an article this week that said that being right is better than being happy. How many of you read that? Did you, anybody see that in the news? It's kind of a strange article, but let me describe it to you. They did a study where they had husbands participate in the study, and it's, it's a fun, I've I got to tell you the story. They, they didn't tell the wives that there was a study going on. And for the length of the study, the husband was to agree with whatever the wife asked him to do. Some of you are wondering, how can I get in on that study? (laughs) Whatever it was, she makes a request, you as happily as you can, you you meet that request. As happily as you can. And, And let's see if that continual agreeableness if that brings a fuller peace and harmony and happiness to the marriage relationship. Surprisingly, it didn't. Because the more he agreed, the more she asked over and over again. And so even though he knows he's participating in this experiment, after a while he feels a little bit more and more like he's being taken advantage of. And and resentment begins to build up that actually drives them apart. And one after another, the couples bailed out of the experiment because he had to confess and tell her, her what was going on because he couldn't take it anymore. It wasn't happiness. So we tend to think... The way to peace is to avoid conflict. Yes, dear, whatever you would like, dear. And we take that out of marriage into all other kinds of relationships. I will duck the conflict to maintain the peace. God didn't do that. God didn't do that. 
graciously and generously, yet he dove right into the center of the conflict, bore the wrong that we had done upon himself in order that he could make peace. And there's something of that that we can take, that bearing of wrong, whatever it is that I can bear, and that extending of forgiveness, not ignoring the wrong as if it hadn't occurred, not ignoring the hurt as if it hadn't occurred, but bearing whatever wrong I can bear and extending forgiveness is the way to confront and then heal what has disrupted peace in the relationship. And that's what our Savior did for us. He bore our sin. He bore our guilt in order to be for us our peace. And so the angels sing to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men. You know, the angel's declaration is your invitation. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Is, does that describe your life? Is my life a life that brings glory to God because already I am living toward his eternity. I'm embracing his humility on the way to majesty. I'm confident in the midst of trouble that God is going to complete the good work that he's begun in me. No matter the turmoil yet within, I am at peace because I trust him more than I'm, I'm perplexed by my circumstances. Does our life glorify God? Does our life glorify God because we have found peace in the Son of God. That's what I would love to leave you with at Christmas time. The greatest lesson we could learn from Bethlehem is this one born in this humblest of places was born there for us to be our peace. The angel said it to shepherds and from there to all of us. Peace on earth. The angel's declaration is your invitation. Do you have peace? Do you want peace? Even before you leave this morning, you can have that peace. I'm going to pray in just a moment. We're going to pray as we, as we um, complete our worship, receive our offering this morning. And uh, yet I'd also like to invite you, if, if, there's, if you'd like to know something more about Christmas, something more about the Christ of Christmas, something more about his peace, I'd invite you to, to, to come forward. They'll be over in the alcove over here. There'll be some of, our, some of our leaders and their wives that'd be happy to talk with you or just pray with you. Maybe there's something going on that you would like to just pray for his peace. Maybe there's somebody that you would like to pray that they would know God's peace. We would love to join you. We would love to pray with you. The angel's declaration is our invitation. Now, I, I mentioned we're going to receive this morning's offering. And God... God provided for us abundantly in Bethlehem, didn't he? And yet, God has provided for us in this year as a church. Already this year, God has graciously, through his people, already provided for the budget needs of the church for the year. The, mud, the budget's met. In fact, it's more than met. The finances are good. And so we would like to say this. This offering, this Sunday... And next Sunday, I would like to invite you. There are, there are offering envelopes in the pew in front of you. And you can use those to designate. And there's two designations typically. Well, one that we always have all through the year, and that's the building fund. There is stuff that needs to be caught up on. And then the other thing, perhaps I would suggest that you could designate to this morning, 
And that would be um, a special offering for missions and outreach. That we will use the offerings this Sunday and next Sunday. If they're designated in those envelopes, we'll use them in that way. If God has met our needs, we will say, well, Lord, then what would you have us to do in these areas? What would you have us to do in terms of some of those building things that need to be caught up? But especially, what would you have us to do in terms of missions? What would you have us do in terms of the peace of Christ around the world? Isn't it a wonderful thing to say our needs have been met by our gracious God? How can we share his grace with others? So I encourage you, use those envelopes and go ahead and designate your offering this morning. Our gift, um, by God's grace, to the community and the world around about us that need to know him as well. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace in Christ. Thank you that Jesus himself is our peace. Oh, Lord, if there are some folks this morning that have been, had that aching within their hearts to actually know a genuine, true peace from God, that this morning, Lord, you would, you would open that up to, to them by your word, by your promise, and even by coming and praying with another. Lord, if there's somebody on our hearts this morning that we would pray for, Lord, we lift that person up to you now. We would love to pray again. We'd love to use those communication cards and be able to continue to pray for those who have need. Lord, and would you take our gifts? Would you take our offerings? Lord, we're grateful for how you provided for us, and there's no better time than a Christmas Sunday in the end of the year to say you have met our needs, Lord. We would give ourselves away. We would now give away what you've given us. We would give that away for the purpose of others around the world and in this town to know Jesus as their peace as well. Lord, do this, and we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, and all who believe said, Amen.